Hey, Tiffany, good afternoon. How are you? I'm very well, Robert. Thank you. How are you? Doing well. Just uh, ready to start ramping down for the Christmas holiday season. So really looking forward to taking some time off and closing the books on 2020. Yeah, I'm I'm not quite there. I've got another few days of cranking away at some deliverables and some proposals to line up for January, but getting very close and very much looking forward to Christmas. So we are on our Seven Deadly Leadership Sins and How to Get to the Good Place series, our deep dive into each of the seven sins. What are we talking about today? Today, we're going to talk about greed. Greed, one of my favorites. <laughs> so we all know we can picture at least other people who are greedy, the people around us who are greedy, times where we've maybe been a little bit too greedy in retrospect. What does greed look like as far as organizational behaviors go? What do we have to watch out for at work in our organizations with our teams as it relates to greed? When I think of greed in uh, almost like storybook form, I think of like Brothers Grimm fairy tales that were then turned into to Disney style fairy tales where there's always some evil looking little creature that's hoarding things. And it whatever the story manifests itself to be, it's always about them, like they are at the center and their desires are at the center. When I think about greed in a business sense... It's the only one of the deadly sins, Robert, that I frame up as what you don't hear. So this entire series is finding the signals in the noise. It's listening for very specific behavior patterns and word choices that become habitual so that we can, as leaders, weed them out when they're small before they become embedded. And for this, it is the only one of the deadly sins that is, to me, representative of something you don't hear. And I think of it as it's customer obsession is assumed. So whoever your customer is, think about it this way. If my customer is internal, external, operations, whether I am a project team lead, a middle level, middle tier manager, I'm an executive, and my customers are varied, they're, they're buyers, and they're also people sitting on my board, and they're also the stock market. They're, I have a, a wide variety of customers my conversations almost always with an initiative or a project, they start out with the customer at the center. They start out with, Agile is, writes this so beautifully at, at its most granular level when they use the quote story. There's always a so that at the end of the story. I want this because this so that and that last phrase is always about the user, the person who has a need. And that's always where we start, no matter how big the initiative is. But over time, almost accidentally to streamline conversations, I find that the person we're doing X for is left out of the actual conversation and they're assumed to be present in the conversation. You follow what I'm saying? I do. I think one reason for that could be things are easier when you focus internally so it's very hard to think about customers. You may have to make really hard decisions if you focus internally. I think there's a very derogatory term called bike shedding, where I've actually been accused of that before. <laughs> but the idea is if you have... I don't know this one. Yeah, you, if you have someone, uh, like a group of people building something really complicated, like a nuclear power plant, for instance, you will have a group that focuses on the paint color and things that are inconsequential because they're not afraid of or not willing to do or not capable of doing the really hard work. And so they're just basically, the, 
the term is they're out in the back designing a bike shed when we should be building this nuclear silo. And so it's one of those things where you can really create an incentive structure internally with a tighter feedback loop that benefits you for focusing on internal metrics or desires or budget that don't, that have nothing to do with the end customer. And you can get away with it because you also control, in some sense, the the measures and and things like that within the organization. Is that, mm-hmm. am I on the right vein there? I think you're on the right vein because think of, put this into a, a high level technical company and what you hear in the spirit of bike shedding, when an initiative starts out, you hear about the business case. You hear about the customer who we're building for. And then as the conversation goes on, here's where bike shedding comes in. What you have is say one party, one party arguing for their own feature set or a piece of security that has to be included and not continually restating what should be obvious. They're not constantly restating that they need this feature set because of the customer's expectation around X, or they need this piece of security enhancement because of the the protection and value to the customer. It's this assumption that slips in. And when we allow that to happen, all of a sudden, it's it's almost we're not talking about nefariousness here, right? We're talking about valid needs that are raised and important decision making criteria, but not key decision criteria, because deci- key decision making criteria would be customer centricity or customer obsession. So I want to pull on the accidental shift over time, because I think it's also true that especially the more junior you get, you just may not know who your customer is. If you work for Nike, Nike sells shoes to to people like you and me, but that's not to your definition of customer earlier. That's it's so broad. If you have an internal function at Nike, your customers it might not be useful to think of them as the shoe buyers, but maybe the marketing department. And so the more junior you are, maybe you just don't know who they are. You're making decisions based on your best knowledge, your best understanding of, of the current situation, but you can't be aligned because you have no vocabulary for it. And I have a friend who owns a business and I remember every time someone, it's like a brick and mortar thing. And every time someone came in and bought something from his store, he would say, Hey, thank you for your trust. And I was always thinking that's so, such an interesting thing. Like, why do you always say that? Like every time. And he said, Oh yeah, growing up, my parents would always tell me if people give you money, if they give you dollars, that indicates that they trust you. That's a vote of trust. Hmm. And so in this case, your customers are, are rewarding you with a tremendous amount of trust. They're voting with their dollars. And over time, your actions, your behaviors, your, your mindset shifts away from customer focus to more internal focus. So you're still reaping the rewards in some sense of your customers' trust and funds. And yet you're not reciprocating that trust with behaviors and actions that serve their best interest. Absolutely. I like your example of someone being junior and just simply not knowing better or not having the the vocabulary. This is, you're hitting like the bullseye right in the middle in terms of what leaders' responsibilities look like in this instance, because our people will mirror what we do. They'll mirror what we say. They will also mirror what we don't say. So if we don't emphasize something, they won't. If we don't state, restate things constantly to keep priorities clear, they will step right into naturally an assumption that thing is not important because it was left out. 
I was very fortunate early in my career to be mentored by the founder and former CEO of my past firm, ThoughtWorks. And he had grown up in a, a political household. His dad was a politician and had learned at a young age this concept of listening for what isn't said. So when he translated that into a business sense and he would take me on sales calls with him and I just had the privilege of sitting at the feet of a master, listening to him get to know clients and try to understand their problems and pitch what we could do for them. When we would debrief after those meetings, he would ask me this, what I thought were the strangest questions. He didn't really want to hear me recap what had been said. That was easy. He would ask me to tell him three things I didn't hear. So I had to think about what hadn't been said by him, by them, what in what context those things had been left out, and we would talk about why that might be. And it would help us formulate our approach to come back with another proposal. And he instilled in me at an early point in my career that often what is not said is more important than what is said. I think that's true of all sorts of relationships. In this context, it becomes the leader's imperative to continue to bring what feels like restating the obvious to the forefront. You're teaching junior people a certain vocabulary. You're also, though, as a senior leader, you are connecting a root structure through the entire through the entire organization from Nike as an example, from what Nike actually does to who they sell to, to whom they're accountable to, and what each person's part is in that. It's constantly retraining to stay focused on the right priority, which in this example is customer obsession. This is a really difficult one to really assess and experience and be aware of as a leader in an organization because you're actually looking for, hunting for the absence of something. Yes. It's not like you can see someone behaving poorly, provide feedback and rally around that thing that happened and use it as an example. And that's a data point that you can create trend lines around. And there's historical accounts. This one, you're hunting for things, the absence of things. So what are some examples of stuff that goes unsaid which leads to this organizational greed. We all know what greedy people look like. What are the absence of things that create greedy organizations? Well, it often is the, rein the reinforcement and the restating of what caused something to be important in the first place. So if, let's say we're having a team status meeting and we're three months into an initiative, at the beginning... It's very common to keep looking at the pieces, the components of the business case or the, the value that will be delivered to a particular party. That's how one would have made the case to secure funding in the first place. Three months in, now that funding has been secured and the initiative is kicked off, we bleed that out of our, our discussion. We, we're not constantly reminding ourselves of a, a success at a status meeting or a miss on a plan and what the ramifications are to the customer from the original intent, what the ramifications are to internal customers or external customers because of a miss. Uh, because we all miss on our plan. That's why we add in buffers and, and why we constantly replan. So it's, it, I think even my example is a bit vague to you because it is, for me, it is whatever particular customer 
and customer set I'm delivering for, I want to hear their name come up constantly. I want to hear their organization come up constantly. I want to hear the value statement restated constantly so that I just know what my and my team's number one focus is. So I remember this Steve Jobs story where I think it was in the Macintosh Lisa days very early on, and he was really taking this engineer to task around how quickly the Mac booted from being completely shut off into you can start clicking around the operating system. And he kept pushing and pushing and they got it down from let's, I don't know the the specific details, but three minutes to a minute and a half to a minute. And he's basically, I want to get this down to 20 seconds. And they're like, Steve, why are you so intent on getting this load time down? He's like, hey, we're going to sell this to millions of people you start extrapolating that out into large numbers, do the math, like we're we're saving whole human lives when we're making this boot sequence more effective. Like it seemed like everyone else was focused on delivering whatever was keeping them busy. And Steve Jobs kept really bringing them back to, hey, this is about the customer. This is, and he equated it maybe a little dramatically to saving lives, but it was still in his mind, he was thinking about the end users, the customers, the people who are buying his machines. Yeah, and, and I, Steve Jobs was brilliant at that, right? In every, I can think of a number of different examples with the focus on the user experience, everything from the creation of the gumdrops to the way that one felt about using the interface that was just so, it was transformative on so many levels in the industry because it was not, it wasn't necessarily for the tech savvy in a way that all that computer systems had been in the past. It was for the user, for the novice. It what it made people you were supposed to feel good using it, feel good interacting with your machine. And that was a first, right? Feeling good. But that's what I would say is you're giving a great example of the presence of customer value, even if it's not stated in words like the placement of this icon here will create value. It was a focus on the way a customer would feel, the way a customer would experience something. So the statement is still there. The under the undercurrent and the intent is even present and discussed. That makes a lot of sense. So as a leader, then it's your job to maybe constantly inject. I like what you said too. Who define the customer? Who are we talking about? What are we doing for them? What are the when things go wrong, especially like what will be felt by the customer? What is the impact to the customer? A lot of if you're a Tesla or something like that, the things that you may be rolling out or maybe delayed a month could save lives. And so you, it really has this material impact on the end people who are who are using your your product or service. I, I had another example around Johnson and Johnson, but I can't remember it exactly. It was when it was talking about even a reframe of their branding overall as a company, like what do you, what do they produce? Do they produce shampoo? Do they produce baby products and talcum powder and band-aids? Or do they produce comfort and health? Do they produce, yeah, do they help produce healthy families? That focus on who their customers are was something that was revolutionary when they relaunched their brand. Now you see it from time to time in different places, whether it's Walgreens and Dwayne Reed reframing or whether it's Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> reframing themselves to 
America runs on Duncan with a little running icon, and now they call themselves Duncan and not Donuts because that's supposed to make you feel better about the calories you're consuming. But it really is, they are, they're, it's cleverly re, repositioning around an understanding of what their customer needs. Their customer needs to feel good about consuming a gajillion calories in fried donuts for breakfast. So like every Dunkin' Donuts you see has a line of people out the door. So there's thought there around customer obsession. I I love those words. I heard them, I was emceeing a, a leadership conference a couple of years ago and was privileged enough to uh, introduce this gentleman by the name of Surinder Singh. He was an executive GM at National Australia Bank, and he'd retired, older gentleman, he'd retired twice and then been pulled back out of retirement. He referred to himself and was known in the industry as a serial transformer, and he would be brought into organizations because he knew how to transform. And his whole synopsis, like everything that encompassed his brand, even though he was referred to as a serial transformer, he referred to himself as someone who was customer obsessed, period. Like he would generate metrics and reports and dashboards at the executive levels for a, a, a full you know, global transformation of an organization all around customer obsession, customer centricity, and any metric that made sense for that organization that showed how their changes were directly positively impacting the customer, he would look at. It was just a fascinating way of rethinking what one even measures. And that's a really hard thing to define. You'd think it's it would be straightforward, but on the surface, it's really challenging. So I, I looked up the, I think it was Procter & Gamble that you were talking about earlier. So there's a really good book called Playing to Win by Alan Laffley, uh, who was an executive at Procter & Gamble. Okay. And they, part you. of it is talking about defining your purpose. And they said... We will provide branded products and services of superior quality and value that improve the lives of the world's consumers now and for generations to come. So what that means and, and what he talks about in his book is when they're designing razor blades for third world countries that they really had, they like sent their people there to go and, and learn about what, how do people shave in third world countries? They might not have access to running or hot water consistently 100% of the time. So you can't put this multi-blade kind of assumption together. They designed products at a price point that allowed people to be more hygienic, to take care of themselves, to what they say is improve their lives. We've all had those mm -hmm. stupid, simple products. One of the most recent ones I saw was the, the like Daisy sour cream instead of having the like little jar where you get the spoon in and always gets like taco meat on the spoon and messes up the sour cream. <laughs> they have a little squeeze bottle now. It's, that's perfect, right? That that improves your lives, your life in a little way, in a silly way. And so I think having that laser focus of it's different when you have that mentality of that constant focus on improving the lives of consumers. When they talk about diapers or whatever product, focusing on that really, I think, helps make sure that the organization's priorities are valued and you don't fall into greedy behaviors where you become self-oriented as an individual, as an organization, because your focus is in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, I, all of these are a bit tongue in cheek, but greedy behavior, it doesn't look like the cartoon characters that we remember as kids. It's, these are well-intentioned people, very gradually walking down a path one step at a time that's the wrong path and not just simply not realizing 
that they have left their what should have been the center of their universe, their whole point of existence as a company that just got left out. And I, I do think that's why I like the word assumed. We assume customer obsession. It's not an intentional removal, an intentional absence. It's an accident. So as a senior leader, it's our job to keep reinstating this at all different levels. I, I do think we understand this. Like it, it resonates with us in a, in a critical way. I was talking to a colleague not long ago who was struggling a little bit with building relationships at the operational level in her organization. And a suggestion I made to her was, but what if you started thinking about those people as your customers? You can think about your customer and deliver them with great value. She was also at a consulting firm. But what if you thought about those people that are your service providers as your customers also? What would happen then? And it, for the, for her, that was going to be a light bulb moment that changed the way she interacted with different groups of people. I like that there's a level of responsibility that you have when you're serving a customer. And so you may view other organizations as that they're always nagging me about this report or this thing that I need to give. They're never meeting their commitments, whatever. It can create an adversarial relationship. But if you view them as, hey, they're, they're a customer, we're here to serve them, that can help unlock some professional will or general well-being thoughts when you think when you frame up another human or another organization in that way. Great. So what what are some remedies to greed? I think the remedy is similar to gluttony, where the remedy was self-control. It was a different kind of self-control, like a reprioritization overall. The remedy here is also self-control, but this time it's a different kind of spin on self-control. Instead of self-control that causes us to prioritize differently and make something work inside constraints or, or not fall into victim mentality like we've talked about before, the, this is a self-control that puts others first. And in this case, it's the customer. So it's a reframing of controlling my own need and my perspective because I'm putting the thing that's important back in the center. I, I love the technique the five whys technique from uh, Toyota. I use it all the time in lots of different instances. But this one in particular, five whys would allow you to look at any particular discussion point in a meeting and start probing yourselves as a team, like asking deeply, like, why are we doing this? But why are we doing this? And why are we doing this? And as you continue that thread back, you will eventually get back to the purpose. What was the vision? What was the business case? What was the customer that what was the customer need and value statement? And then that can be brought back forward. It does take courage from someone, presumably the leader in this case, being willing to say, I'm just going to cause a, like call a, a pause on this discussion and bring this awareness to the table in a way that doesn't make people feel ashamed, but in a way that allows them to just reset and be willing to be vulnerable enough to go through an exercise that would reset all of their discussions. So when we talked about the self-control that was related to gluttony, that's a organizational leader's job to prioritize and to, to make those very clear. This one is a little bit more around communication and facilitation, around getting to the core. We are engaging in or not engaging in these behaviors, making these decisions how to let's dig into that and figure out how this actually impacts our customer satisfaction, mm -hmm. the lives of our customers, their well-being, things like that. Is that accurate? 
Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It, it's a it is a subtle difference because you could you can look at self-control is a nice, broad statement. It's a hard thing to do. It's a very simple set of words. I think with gluttony, what we were talking about was a prioritization that takes one's focus off of what you don't have. Like they get all the X was the phrase we used so much in our last uh, discussion so that you're not thinking about what you don't have, but prioritizing how to work inside the constraints and the situation that you do have, being very meticulous about prioritizing. This is where it dovetails into greed. How can you prioritize? How can you keep your number one, number one? Because if everything's a priority, nothing is a priority. How do you keep number one priority exactly what it should be and your laser focus on delivery what it should be if you are not customer obsessed. I don't know how you would because your North Star would constantly be deviating. Yeah, you've hit on a really key point here, which is these sins, which are all, like you said, tongue in cheek. None of these dysfunctions ever exist independently. They're all an amalgam that differ, the combination of them differ between organizations. So some of the good habits that you may self-control, whatever that you may need to exhibit really span across and can help solve multiple things. Just in, and I, I keep bringing it back in my mind as you talk about this to individual humans, right? If you have like a weight problem, there's a self-control aspect of eating, of exercise. There's even been this research, which I, I know you've t learned about or read about in Atomic Habits around like key, keystone habits, where if you spend less, you weigh less. And those two things like don't, shouldn't seem like they're correlated, but but they are. And I think within an organization too, those behaviors are span across these sins. But really, you, you as a leader, it's your job to figure out where are we, where's our biggest blind spot? Where's our biggest risk area? And then that's based on what you hear, or in this case, don't hear. And then over time, you can put in those steps to resolve as well. Because if you have a greed problem, you probably have a gluttony problem as well. Exactly. That's a great way to tie them together. There, this, the sad thing about the, these deadly sins is that rarely do, does an organization just have one or does a team have one. They tend to feed off of one another almost on a downward spiral, which does then the positive of that makes it such that if you start to fix one, it becomes easier to remedy the others. So there's always hope. But with greed and listening for what's not said, as you so rightly said before, it's not as clear cut because you have to look for what you have to listen and you have to, to keep searching for patterns of things that are missing and not lose your own true north of being customer obsessed and then have the courage to put a remedy in place that can make some team members and professionals feel a little bit bad, right? It could make them feel a little bit embarrassed that they somehow lost or assumed the customer's need and stopped stating it and stopped reminding people of what they were doing collectively as a team. That's absolutely right. And at our firm, we have this sort of expectation around making difficult decisions where we're incentivized through how our performance is judged to do what's right for the group that you're in, for the client, for the team. And it's helpful that that aligns an incentive structure. But there is this, as a leader, this requirement, this need to make tough decisions because, yes, when you go specifically go down one direction, you are by definition 
not going down the direction that other people who have their own incentive structures and their own ideas on how things should run, it's going counter to what they want. So part of this, really, to your point, on the greed side comes down to communication and making sure that you're almost uh, annoyingly squeaky wheel about who the priority is, what the customer focus is, what the impact is to them. And then over time, that consistency will help drive the priority and also the decision-making around, hey, we're doing what's best for the customer. And then hopefully those incentive structures across the organization can be adapted over time to match, to be aligned with, because it's becoming so obvious what our focus is and should be. That's exactly right. There, there are a lot. We've both been, because we're consultants, we've been in a lot of different organizations. And, and I know we've both been in organizations where you see that almost like obnoxious looking poster that's posted everywhere that reminds you of one thing that the organization wants you to remember. But in a way, repetition aids learning. We say that to kids and we know it's right, but it's true for adults too. Our, our brains get busy and our lives get busier and our, our teams have to move faster and be more and more efficient and more and more competitive. We lose track of that one true north, that one thing we need to be focusing on and measuring. And so I almost I always chuckle to myself when I'm in organizations and I see those posters, but I think what it remains to be seen if they live that value. But the fact that they were willing to put it all over their walls is a step in the right direction. And then instituting it is another. But I'm always hopeful when I see things like that. That's interesting because I view it oppositely. I view it as an organizational anti-pattern where if you go through the trouble of having to write it down and, and put it on the wall, it's probably because you're not doing it and you did it as a way to feel better about yourself. But I could be wrong there. I think that maybe the, the right combination is both, right? Post everything up for people to see, make it painfully aware what the priorities are. And then if you live those out, that's probably the best combination. I think where you can get into trouble is if you take the time and energy and effort to post those things and then you don't live them out. That's almost the worst case. That is the worst case mm -hmm. because then you're not, you're purposely or inadvertently or conspicuously being almost hypocritical. Yes, yes, yes. So sadly, I find it, what you're saying to be true that it, it often is that those sorts of reminders are ignored and they're just lip service or uh, a requirement that marketing went through. But that's maybe why we make a good team. Glass half full, glass half empty. We're still half there. Just looking at it from a different perspective. That's right. Yeah. And usually I'm the optimist. So maybe some kind of trauma in my professional past or something. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to talk today about organizational greed. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. It was fun. All right. And we'll see you next week. Take care. All right. Have a good one. Bye.